1: Well, today we have a very special guest. His name is Nathan Gutierrez, and I met Nathan through a mutual friend in Toastmasters. We're both a member of Toastmasters, which is a great organization. It helps you learn how to speak and really improves your leadership skills, and we found that we have kidney disease in common, so I'm so happy to have Nathan on the show today. He's going to tell us a little bit about his journey. So welcome to the show, Nathan.
0: Thank you, Lori, for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Nathan, tell us a little bit about your background and, you know, how you came to be part of the kidney club, I guess.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, first of all, I should mention that I was born with a birth defect called spina bifida. And basically what that is, is uh, when I was born, I was born with a small uh, silver dollar sized hole in my spine uh, that was clearly visible when I was born uh, back in 1983. And back then they didn't have the technology to uh, detect that beforehand. So they didn't really know until I was born, so it was a, a nice surprise, really. Um, I'm the first born out of two kids. I have a younger sister, Tyenne. She's three years younger than I am. She is not disabled at all. Uh, but anyway, it, the spina bifida has confined me to a wheelchair since birth. Uh, for the first three years, my parents carried me around, and then after that, they wanted to create uh, independence for me as much as possible. And so from there on, uh, I learned how to use a wheelchair, and that's how I've gotten around really majority of my life. Um, There was a brief period of time where I did use some walking braces, uh, actually a couple times in my life, but really that was a a difficult situation. I found that even walking 10 or 15 feet was physically taxing, and uh, I figured that using the wheelchair would be much more beneficial to me uh, in my future, and therefore I decided from then on that I would just go ahead and use the wheels.
1: So you know that's it's it's interesting because I was on the Department of Rehabilitation for the state of California, and I had several friends that were basically wheelchair bound most of their life, and they referred to me as their walkie friend. Do you do that?
0: I don't have a nickname for my my walking friends. No, uh, really, I just I see myself and everyone around me as normal. Uh, we all have differences in life, regardless of how. Uh, minute or how significant they appear
1: to be. Well, it came up when it was time to pump gas in the car, (laughs) and they're like, can I need my walkie friend to pump gas? And it was interesting because, you know, you you do take things for granted, and we all have challenges in life that we have to overcome. And uh, so tell us a little bit about growing up. What was that like? I mean, it it seemed like you were very active.
0: Yeah, growing up, I, I grew up in a very normal household. Um, my mom and dad uh, were married uh, until I was about nine, and then they went through a divorce. Um, unfortunately, that's that's the case for about 50% of the marriages nowadays, but back then, this was the early 90s, it, you didn't hear a lot about it, and my parents made sure that my sister and I both knew that it had nothing to do with us, and, you know, originally I thought that a lot of it had to do with my disability, because it, it is difficult, you know, really, it affects the entire family, not just the person with the disability, uh, but they they made very clear that you no, know, they loved us both equally, and and they were always going to care about us, and so that was not the problem whatsoever. Um, but other than that, you know, I, I grew up normally. I had household chores, uh, did whatever I was able to do. Uh, my parents made sure that they raised me as quote unquote normal, however you choose to define that, uh, as I could be. And so I, I really didn't have anything abnormal. Uh, Really, the only thing additionally that I had that most children do not is physical therapy. I did that two, three times a week growing up until I was about 10 or 11 years old. Um, But other than that, I I had a love of sports. I'm a huge Lakers fan. have been since I was a kid. I remember watching Magic Johnson on TV with my dad, and he was my favorite player, Lakers. And I always wanted to, to play basketball or have sports in my life somehow. And so what happened was I was born in Los Angeles. And so when I was about five, uh, shortly, you know, before my parents divorced a few years later, we moved to Bakersfield, California, and here I met an adult wheelchair basketball team, and of course they were 20, 30 years older than I was, and I was only about five, six years old at the time, but they encouraged me to come out and join them and see what it was all about and see if it would be something I would be interested in doing, and from there, I've been part of the organization for over 20 years, so oh. obviously I, I took a liking to it. Um, but they, they really taught me a lot about what was what it would be like to be a man growing up who just happened to be in a wheelchair, and that's kind of the approach I take, And in that I'm not a person with a disability. I'm just someone who happens to have
1: one. Well, you know, in one of the goals of Renal Support Network, or one of the goal is, you know, the peer mentorship. I mean, you know, until you probably met that, you know, group of men that were playing basketball uh, in a wheelchair, it may not have occurred to you. And then it helped you decide, wow, I can do that too. And that's why it's so important for everybody to tell their story because you can impact somebody else with that information.
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, meeting these these adult friends, I mean, they were they were really the first friends I had here in town. And, um, you know, I, I it really opened my eyes to see what I would be capable of doing if I just worked hard at it. Uh, all of A lot of them drove their own cars. They had jobs, careers that they went to every day. A lot of them owned homes, had families, wives, husbands, kids. And uh, I, I really, from that point forward, I realized, hey, I can live a pretty, pretty normal life. Uh, I just put my mind to it.
1: So when did you learn that your kidneys were failing, and was it caused by your illness?
0: Um, I learned in 2006. I was 23 years old. At the time, I... I had decided that uh, I was going to be in college for forever, <laughs> basically. Uh, I, I had been in college for about five years at that point at the community college. I was on the, uh, the lifetime plan, as they called it there. And um, I had not been feeling well for some time. And so, really, I thought it was just how I was meant to feel. You know, once you, you're not feeling well, you're feeling a certain way, uh, however you choose to put it, it really becomes a part of who you are and then after a while you really don't know any different and so what happened was um, I remember in 2006 it was around mid June late June I was sitting at my coffee table and I was working on my laptop computer and uh, the next thing I know is I I get a call from my doctor and they said well you know your kidneys are failing and I said well I don't, I don't understand <laughs> And they said, well, you know, you remember when you came down last week, uh, we did some testing. And, uh, yeah, you're in stage five renal failure. And I was, I was really surprised. Um, I called my mom immediately, and she came home from work. I was still living at home at the time, and she rushed me to the ER. And, I, you know, I really had no idea, Lori. That, that
1: and this wasn't ever brought to your attention? This was a possibility?
0: Uh, my mom told me when I was a kid that they knew that the kidneys were not normal in a sense. But um, there was really no expectation it was ever going to reach this point. And the only indications that I had uh, leading up to this point, and of course I know what it is now, but at the time I'd say two to three weeks leading up to the official diagnosis, my routine was literally getting up in the morning, getting sick uh, in the bathroom, going back to bed, and sleeping anywhere from 12 to 14 hours a night and still feeling restless. And uh, at the time, I, I had sleep apnea. I'd had sleep apnea for probably six or seven years by that time. So I had the uh, you know the mask on, the the CPAP machine, and uh, it was just it was a terrible feeling. It just felt like the flu. Right. Like, you know, unless you know what the symptoms are for renal failure, you think this is just a very long prolonged.
1: Yeah, you feel tired. And, you know, you brought up a good point. You don't realize how bad you feel because it's the chronicity of any chronic illness. You slowly start to feel bad. So it's not like you broke your leg and one day you were walking and the next day you can't walk. There's nothing drastic about your change and you just learn to accept it. And, you know, that's part of the denial process, too. Um, But then you need something critical, like, wow, I can't get out of bed for a while. There must be something wrong. And then the doctor calls you and confirms it.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I was really stubborn. And um, I told my mom, again, I was 23. I was an adult. And I said, look, I'm I'm fine. You know, I'm a a guy who didn't want to admit something might be wrong. And uh, I'm, I'm fine. I'm just, I'm sick. I've got stress from school. I made every excuse that I can think of to get out of going to the doctor. And she said, well, I, you know, I really don't care how old you are. I'm taking you to the doctor.
1: (laughs) I'm still your mother and I can still tell you what to do.
0: (laughs) They do, but, you know, she really, she saved my life in in forcing me to do that. So, again, we went to, we went to L.A. and, um, and they did the blood test, they did the ultrasounds, they did, you know, the, the workup that they normally do and, that was the diagnosis. I mean, I had already reached stage five renal failure. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't progressive at that point. I was already there. And over the next two days, um, I started dialysis immediately and that led me on a three-year journey of dialysis twice a week or three times a week, um, three hours a day.
1: And so you were doing hemodialysis, obviously. Did you ever think about doing home dialysis or did you just choose to do in center? Well, they did
0: talk to me about it, and I was hesitant. Not because I didn't feel I couldn't do it, but I was always hesitant because what if something went wrong? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I I wanted to be there and to have someone handle it. Uh, And at that time, too, I was still in school. In fact, during that three-year period, for half that time, I was going to school full-time and on dialysis at the same time. I would literally get up in the morning on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, go to dialysis from about 9.30 to 1, and then from there, go across the street, because that's how close my school was, and go to class with my arm bandaged up and everything.
1: And what were you studying?
0: And I was getting my degree in business administration. Okay. So it, it wasn't easy, but I was determined to do it. And finally, there was one day that I remember clearly that I was going across the campus. And it's not a huge campus, um, but it's it's significant, especially if you're not feeling well. I went from one end of the campus to the other, and by the time I reached that other end of the campus, I nearly passed out because I had had treatment that day and I was exhausted. And uh, I finally went to my guidance counselor and I said, you know, I think you're right. I, I just, I need to leave school for a while. And, uh, you know, I don't want you to think I'm quitting. I am going to come back and I am going to finish this. But all of you have been right. all of you that have been advising me that I need to take care of myself first. And so that's what I did. That next year and a half, I just I focused on my health and, and uh, leading up to that transplant.
1: So tell us a little bit about how the transplant came about.
0: Well, it was interesting. Uh, in about 2007, so it was only about a year, maybe less than a year after I started dialysis. Um, you know, I'd, I'd done some work in the community over the years, and so some people knew about me, and the media got wind of it, and so they got in touch with me, and uh, we did an article in the paper. Um, I had put together what I called Nathan's Kidney Team, and that was just a few members uh, who were family friends, really. And uh, they were mostly my mom's friends, but, you know, of course, they were my friends too. Uh, and so these, uh, these people decided to get together, and we were going to put together a fundraiser. And uh, the fundraiser eventually would go towards the uh, transplant-related expenses, um, which would not include the transplant itself. Of course, that's covered by insurance, but what I mean is... Uh, we would be traveling from Bakersfield to Los Angeles and, uh, you know, staying in hotels and eating food and, you know, help with the bills because my parents would have to take time off of work and, you know, cover those those types of expenses. Uh, we, had a, we had partnered up with CODA from uh, Indiana. That's the Children's Organ Transplant Association. Uh, CODA.org is their URL online. And uh, even though it says children in there, they do deal with some adults. So we connected with them. So anyway, we did this big fundraiser. It was a a dinner and an auction and you know, the community really pulled together for me I, I live in a really generous community and uh, you know we raised quite a bit of money that night and so that when the media covered it they um, you know they put it on their, their newspaper and then they put it online well thanks to the invention of the internet which is a wonderful tool uh, a couple of my now very good friends up in San Francisco heard about me and heard about what was going on and uh they knew that my dad was going to be my donor, but we weren't a match. And, you know, you're in the transplant community, oh, we need to have matches. And so they got a hold of me, and they asked me where I was going to have my transplant, and I had told them my whole story and everything. And and uh, they said, well, you need to get to Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles because they have a protocol down there called the ABO Incompatible Kidney Transplant Protocol. And that they would be able to match me and my dad, regardless of our blood types, and we are different. I'm O, and he's A. And in the normal transplant community, that's impossible to do. Uh, But Cedars had been working on this protocol, and they'd had it for a few years, uh, but they were really pioneering uh, this protocol to make it work.
1: Because normally O is the universal blood donor to everybody, so A is uh, probably the lowest on the totem pole of giving a kidney.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Besides, besides A B, yeah. Um, and so, if it was reversed, and this is what I tell everybody, if it was reversed, I was able to give my dedication. That wouldn't have been a problem at all. Mm-hmm. But because it was the way it was, it was a little more challenging. So here, I had been on dialysis for a while, just trying to figure out how can I, how can I get a transplant, and make this work. And so, really, when I I heard about uh, Cedars through these new friends of mine. Uh, That was a blessing.
1: So, wow, it's great that your dad was a potential donor, but it really was an issue because you weren't the same blood type. So what did you do?
0: Right. So what happened was, uh, you know, I'm the type of person that I always want to do my own research. So I went online and I found out about this ABO, and those are the letters of the different blood types. Uh, So I found this ABO incompatible kidney transplant program that they offered at Cedar sinai And uh, at that time, these friends of mine... uh, who had found me through this Google alert online uh, from the, the fundraiser that I had um, they told me about it and they said you need to get to Cedars if you, if you want to get through this ABO incompatible program and it's, it's really going to benefit you and I said great so what I did is I contacted my insurance company and they said well here's the problem we don't have a contract with Cedars we have a contract with this other place and this is what we're sending you. Uh, however good news they're starting their own ABO incompatible program And so I explored it with with this other center, and um, I found out that they wanted me to be the first person to go through their new protocol, their new ABO protocol. And because of my physical disability and my case is a little more complex, I didn't feel that it was safe for me or wise for me to go through a compatible program. And so I explored it with with this other center, and... um, I found out that they wanted me to be the first person to go through their new protocol, their new ABO protocol. And because of my physical disability and my case is a little more complex, I didn't feel that it was safe for me or wise for me to go through as a number one patient.
1: You you didn't want to be the first. I mean, it is a medical practice and they're practicing on you. I mean, you really have to be your own advocate because... Um, I was under the same situation and having high antibodies, and there were different, uh, you know, options for me to be desensitized. But it's really important when you're undergoing a new therapy is to go somewhere that actually has a program where they're tracking results. They, you know, they're not like, oh, I just want to try this new protocol on you to see if it works.
0: (laughs) Well, and I I heard through these new friends that Cedars had a 98% plus success rate. Right, And I thought, well, I like those numbers. So, um, you know, I I fought my best to get to Cedars, and it took a good year to get me over there. Uh, During that time, this other center told me, okay, well, look, you don't have to be first. I mean, I I really pushed for that. I didn't want to be first. But I insisted that if I were to go to this other place, that uh, I want to see a few of them done first successfully before I'm I'm convinced that that they have the protocol down and, and that it would be beneficial for me to go there. Uh, meanwhile, and you know, in the background, I'm still trying to get to Cedars. The and so, what happened? They said, "Okay, well, we'll do." Uh, I think they said three, and then you can see based upon those results as to how you feel about it. I said, "Okay," you know, I agreed to it. And so, uh, I don't remember the exact results, but it was something like the first person dropped out because of health. You know, they they ended up becoming um, so sick that they weren't able to go through a transplant. The second one had financial issues with their insurance, and then the third one. I think, dropped out or had insurance problems also, something like that. So then I became number one on the list again.
1: <laughs> You're just number one, Nathan. <laughs> you got to get the memo on that.
0: Yeah. So again, I had this conversation. I said, well, you know, based upon the three that you had that didn't work, I, I'm number one again. I, I'm not doing this. And so and I, I reiterated the statement to my insurance. I said, I really want to get the Cedars. This is going to help me. And it's I think it's going to be uh, not only saving my life, but it's going to save you money. So, you know, telling the insurance company, that's always...
1: That always piques their interest when... The, the, the three words they love, save you money. I mean, that that seems to be their hot, hot button. <laughs> not save lives.
0: <laughs> well, and coming from a business background, you know, I can understand the bottom line is the most important thing. But, um, you know, finally, and I, I don't know exactly what happened, but one day I got a call from Cedars, and they said, hey, you know, we're... We're well aware of you. Um, We know who you are. We've known who you are. And uh, we want to invite you to come and be part of our program now. It turns out my insurance had made a special contract just for me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, thank goodness. And so I went to Cedars. I did the work. uh, You know, that still takes some time, of course. And uh, in March 2009, March 24, 2009, I got my transplant.
1: And so basically, what did you have to go through? Because uh, did they have to do any type of plasmapheresis? Or did you? what type of protocol did you have to go through to get your father's kidney?
0: Yeah, well, at Cedars, their protocol is a three-step process. The first step uh, was rituximab, or rituxin mm-hmm. for short. And from what I know, that is a, uh, usually used for cancer treatment. And so what it is is they, they do a six- to eight-hour slow and it is slow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know. I had the same thing for my transplant. Did it's... you?
0: Yeah. And so I'm sitting there, and, you know, it, it's pretty much an all-day process. And I remember that they give you Benadryl because it's going to be a lot of itching involved. And I remember also having hot flashes. And, guys, we don't have hot flashes, but believe me, they're terrible. <laughs> um, so itching, hot flashes, headaches. And I just remember that it, it was a terrible feeling, but I, I remember that in my mind I decided that I was going to get through this and the ultimate goal was to have a, a successful kidney transplant. And, uh, you know, so I made it through. And so they, you know, they kept telling me, well, we'll we'll turn back the speed of the uh, infusion and so it may take eight, nine hours. And I said, no, I'm going to do this in six. And I think I ended up doing it about six and a half, so pretty good. Second step was plasma for rhesus. Uh, That's where they take all the uh, antibodies out of your blood. And I ended up having six or seven treatments. Normally they do three or four, but my body apparently fights things. So, um, and compared to dialysis, I mean, that's much easier. That's that's not really an issue at all. That's usually about a 90-minute procedure or so, or at least it was in my case. Um, So I had a number of those. And then the final step was IVAG, and Mm -hmm. that is intravenous immunoglobulin. And so basically what that does is once they strip your uh, blood of all the, uh, the, uh, you know, the nutrients and, and the antigens and all that, they, uh, it basically puts up a wall to prevent your immune system from regenerating itself, and it gives the doctors a, uh, a window of opportunity to go ahead and do the transplant. So by the time the IVIG therapy wears off, your kidneys are already in place, transplanted, and your body begins to recognize the kidney as its own, as opposed to a foreign body. And so it's a really neat procedure.
1: It, it is amazing. I had um, a different problem. I um, My best match for my transplant was somebody who was a different blood type than me, but they were ruled out as a living donor because of health issues. And then my stepsister ended up being my donor who was the same blood type, but I had more antibodies to her. So I went through, it was a different, instead of having a, an incompatible blood transplant, I had a desensitization problem. So I had to go through the same protocol. And it's absolutely amazing. Because um, uh, I don't know about you, when you went through the transplant, was it's nice to have a living donor transplant because it's planned. I've had three other deceased donors and it was a little bit more hectic, so it was a little bit more planned on going in on a Friday morning and getting the kidney and, you know, a little bit more calm. What was it like when you got the transplant? Yeah,
0: well, that was an interesting story in itself, let me tell you. Okay, I'm not, I wasn't superstitious at the time. Now I am (laughs) a little bit. And the only reason I say that is because the date was Friday, March 13th, uh, 2009. (laughs) And uh, I told the doctors, I said, okay, well, I'm aware of the date is Friday the 13th, and they they laughed, and they said, okay, well, don't worry, because you're in a Jewish hospital, and 13 is actually lucky. And I said, okay, (laughs) let's just go with that. Um, And uh, so, interesting thing, I woke up early, March 13, 2009, and my fistula for my dialysis that I'd been doing clotted off completely. And it was the first time that it ever happened. My arm and my hand swelled up to about twice the size. So much so I didn't even have knuckles. And so I went in at about 5.30 in the morning. I was panicked. I was upset. It was painful in my arm. And my doctor came rushing in, uh, and he looked at it, and he goes, All right, well, here's the thing. We're going to have to cancel your transplant today and reschedule it uh, because now you have something going on here. And the thing is, is, if we put... The new kidney in and you have an infection in your arm, that's going to damage the kidney. So we need to figure this out first. And uh, obviously there was a lot of disappointment.
1: Yes, <laughs> the, the, the fire alarms.
0: <laughs> no, and the thing is, my dad didn't know entirely what was going on. I mean, he knew about the arm, and but he thought they were going to deal with it and we were going to move forward. So while this was going on, this conversation was going on with my surgeon, he was in the back getting prepared for his surgery. And so finally, I guess they had him all hooked up to his IVs and ready to go, and they went in and they said, okay, we're, we're postponing this thing. And so I remember seeing him later, and he asked me what happened, and I, I told him that story, and, you know, he was pretty disappointed too.
1: So. Yeah, you get all hyped up for it. So when did the transplant take place?
0: Well, it took place 11 days later.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: On March 24th. And that entire time, the 11 days, they, they actually admitted me in the hospital that morning on the 13th. Uh, to take care of this arm problem, and so they thought maybe it was a topical infection. They thought maybe it was an internal infection. They weren't sure, and so they did all kinds of tests and and uh, and they found out that the the main artery uh, or vein uh, in the fistula completely completely clotted.
1: So you needed that transplant, or you're going to have to have another access put in, which wasn't wouldn't be very fun. <laughs> So when you woke up from surgery, I, I know for me, I was peeing all I could pee. I mean, really, it just worked immediately.
0: Oh, it did, yeah. Yeah, they told uh, my mom that as soon as they plugged in the kidney from my dad, it lit up like a bright pink mm-hmm. light. And uh, I think I ended up peeing like two or three liters. It was just a pun.
1: And, and what are your labs today?
0: Uh, my labs are, are really good. Uh, my creatinine hovers anywhere from 0. 0.7 to 1.1 mm-hmm. and then my my bun is down in the in the uh, mid-20s i mean it's um, much better much better than it was
1: and how is your dad
0: doing uh he's doing well you know he had to lose a, a bit of weight uh, before the transplant and uh, he was a smoker uh, back then too and uh, you know and he hasn't gone back
1: So it changed his life for the better as well. It did, yeah. And then, so just to wrap up, because I I think, you know, Nathan, it's so important. You're great at telling your story. Um, You know, what is Toastmasters then? Because I'm a big fan of Toastmasters. I've been going for 22 years. So in closing, you know, can you tell the benefits of Toastmasters and how it's so important to tell your story to inspire others?
0: Well, Toastmasters is great because it it allowed me to um, hone my speaking skills and I knew that after the transplant, that's what I was meant to do. You know, before I I wanted to go into basketball, I decided I wanted to go into coaching. Uh, You know, I wanted to be the first person who happened to be in a wheelchair to coach in the NBA. And uh, I had the wherewithal and the means and the opportunity to one day do that. Uh, A lot of connections there. But after the transplant, I realized that, um, you know, telling my story and inspiring other people and and coaching people, not necessarily in the realm of basketball, but in life and in health, um, was really what I was meant to do. And so shortly after the transplant that same year, I, I joined Toastmasters, so I've been in it you know, over four years now. And, um, you know, I love it. I've, I've had an opportunity to serve as a club officer for uh, numerous times. In fact, I'm once again the current president of my club. I've been the area governor, uh, overseeing four different clubs. I've become a much better speaker. I thought I was pretty good before, but in Toastmasters, they as you know, Lori, they, they count every mistake you make. and. <laughs> And they pointed out to you. And I I remember that when I went into my first meeting and they did that, and they said, I, I said, um, 16 times. And that really brought to my attention that, wow, I need to get better.
1: Yes, you can't get, you know what, it's like stage time. You know, people go to the gym continuously. And I believe I've been going to Toastmasters for 22 years. You never get enough practice. And so once you stop, you get rusty. And you have to continue that skill set, and you get better and better and better. And uh, there's so many incredible speakers in Toastmasters. I I can't even begin to even think I would be even in their ballpark. So I have a lot to learn. (laughs)
0: Well, you know, and and Toastmasters has led me on uh, a journey to where I've met well-known professional speakers in the United States. Uh, A lot of them who are my mentors and, and a few really good friends of mine now. Um, I've had an opportunity to do two TEDx presentations,
1: Mm -hmm. um,
0: one of them that you can actually find on YouTube. Um, And I've started my own communications company, Stand to Speak Communications. And the reason I came up with that is because most people can't stand to speak, and neither can I, literally.
1: <laughs> that's very clever. Well, how do we find out about um, your standtospeak.com if they want to learn more about you?
0: Yes, yeah, standtospeak.com, and that's T-O.
1: Okay, standtospeak.com, and you can learn more about Nathan and his work.
0: And then also, uh, if you want to know more about the ABO-incompatible transplant protocol at Cedars, at least, uh, I own the domain ABO kidneytransplant.com.
1: Yeah, and we've had, um, Dr. Connas on our board, so we have, we've done radio shows with, um, uh, about ABO incompatible, so it's important to know all the information out there about, you know, your options. I mean, there's kidney swaps, where if you have an incompatible donor, you might be able to be put in a swap, and there's so many options today.
0: And, and you know, Lori, I recently learned that they actually do Uh, a cross between what you went through and what I went through. They actually do a highly sensitized ABO, incompatible transplant now. You
1: know what, it's a medical practice and there are people burning the midnight oil to make our lives better and I'm so grateful for that and thank you Nathan so much for sharing your story and you're inspiring and I can't wait to meet you in person someday.
0: I look forward to it too, Lori. I I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak with me today.
1: Thanks for listening
0: to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health
1: provider regarding your medical condition.